0: But I, because I was a follower of Christ, I've been given a new identity in Jesus. The redemptive act of Christ taught me the importance of repentance, turning back to God, and, and learning that, and learning humility, learning how to submit to other people. I don't deserve to lead anybody at all, you know. And so anybody who thinks, you know, hey, I should be on a pedestal, please don't.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith and develop your critical thinking skills. Your journey of faith is your own. It is not something someone else can do for you, but we can come alongside you to encourage you, to challenge you, to entertain you, and most of all, to teach you to think for yourself. My name is Jesse Mayer. I will be your host,
0: and we cannot do the Salty Pastor Podcast without the Salty Pastor himself, <laughs> Dr. Douglas Peak. Well, welcome, everyone. I'm glad you're here today. I'll tell you, thinking for yourself takes some effort. It really does. But you're going to be glad you took the effort to do so because it is the path, not only to a strong faith, but really in essence, knowing who you are and why you're here and the whole point and purpose of your life. So glad you're here with the salty pastor. And we're going to be digging into some more Bible study today.
1: Well, we are wrapping up our study in 1st Peter, a series we're calling Don't Freak Out. Don't freak out. Freak out. <laughs> um, and it is a letter by the Apostle Peter that he wrote to the 1st century church, um, approximately 35 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and the Roman Emperor Nero had singled out followers of Jesus, by mm-hmm. this time known as Christians, for persecution. So as Peter wraps up his letter to the church, what themes are he is he adger- addressing in this final chapter? Well, let's just
0: kind remember the overview, the letter starts off in chapter one saying, look, salvation, redemption, being born again, does something to you. You are changed and transformed in so many different ways. And one of the biggest things that happens is you're given a brand new identity, you know, just a totally new you, and it is a born again Persona second of all, in chapter two, then he goes in, therefore you're being built into a spiritual house where Jesus Christ is a chief cornerstone. So the whole point of this spiritual house is to be built up. Mm. And the point of persecution and suffering is to tear you down. And they, it does this by getting you to forget the truth about who you now are and what you've been changed in two. So then he goes in chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 and even into chapter 5 a teach about strengthen yourself. It's all about strengthening who you are in the f- face of really dramatic suffering. So that's really important to understand. Is this is what you do and that's why you have instruction to Uh, various, uh, like wives, to husbands, to slave servants, and then to everybody else. And so he's kind of getting into all of this about how we should strengthen ourselves in the Lord.
1: Well, it seems like Peter's really encouraging the church to change their attitudes towards what is going on in their time, right? Yes. You got to keep the context of what was happening to them at the time. um, As we read this letter from Peter and in my experience, it seems pretty challenging because I don't really know anybody that enjoys or even (laughs) likes (laughs) suffering pastor.
0: No, I, I can vouch for the fact that I don't. I mean maybe Gandhi but like that's the <laughs> I don't most No, I mean Gandhi was a strange bird, let me tell you. Uh well, let's dig in to see uh dig in and see what we can discover uh, from what the apostle Peter actually wrote. And I think the first thing is we're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 4 and we're going to kind of go a little bit into chapter 5 and he basically starts off and says, "Look, I've been talking about what Christ has done in you and how to strengthen yourself and I've been mentioning persecution, and this is why he wrote the letter and listen to what he says. Verse 12, he says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So his main point here is don't be surprised when persecution hits. Now, if you're not surprised, if you're not shocked, then what are you supposed to do verse 13, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, here's what's really interesting is that Peter knows what he's talking about here, because right after Christ rose from the dead, he was in Jerusalem and he was preaching and teaching on the temple Mount Mm. and in Acts chapter five, the Sanhedrin at that time, the Pharisees and Sadducees became very angry that they were teaching about Jesus. And so in acts chapter five, it says they called, they had arrested the apostles and they had them incarcerated. It says they called them in and had them flogged, right? This is verse 40 of chapter five. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And verse 41 is really interesting. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy of the suffering disgrace for the name. So what he's saying is they were rejoicing because they were counted worthy of suffering in the name of Jesus. And so he says, don't be surprised try and rejoice and the way you can rejoice is not think about whether you deserve it or not. Think about how, look, they hated Jesus. They persecuted him and I am worthy to suffer the same things that Christ suffered. Then he goes on to say in the next verses, verse 14 and following that when you suffer for Christ, uh, in the way that Christ suffered is that that's what makes all the difference. See, look at verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Jesus, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, meaning the name of Christian, follower of Christ. So Look, he's basically saying there are two types of suffering, right? There's two types of persecution. He goes, first of all, you can suffer for bad choices or decisions that you have made. He says, if you murdered somebody or if you stole something, or if you're any other type of criminal activity. He says, or even a meddler. I, I, I don't know a what a meddler. meddler is. What is a meddler? Someone you know? who gets <laughs> in the way of things. <laughs> meddling. Somebody's always meddling. It's really kind of funny that he throws that in right up there with murderer, thief, or criminality. <laughs> That's a, that is quite the breadth of people. I, know, I thought that was kind of funny. Meddler. It reminds me of the Riddler in yes. Batman, you know. But uh, it's interesting. He says, look, you can suffer for bad choices, for mistakes, or a bad decision. Uh, sometimes you'll even make a bad decision because of a lack of knowledge and you'll Mm. suffer from that. He goes, but this is different. He goes, when you're suffering for doing the right thing, you know, and that is following Christ, that is a big deal. And so verse 17, he goes on to say, look, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And now he quotes, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner?" Now verse 17 is a very popular passage of scripture that's often quoted. And it says, well, judgment begins with the household of God. Okay. Unfortunately, the way people use it when quoting it is often out of context.
1: Are, are they using it to judge the church? Is that what they like to do?
0: Yeah, in many ways. And, and so what they are interpreting it to mean is this, the judgment of God or the wrath of God is falling on believers because of their sins. So people who are in the church, they've made a mistake and something bad. happened. Well, God is judging them. So hmm. let the judgment begin with the household of God, but this isn't what it means At all and the reason why is because the judgment of your sins have fallen upon Jesus Christ. And when you are born again, the judgment of your sins is taken away. And this is in uh, Romans chapter eight verse one. It says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The sins are no longer counted against them. So Jesus Christ died once for all for the sinner. So our sins have been espunged by the sacrifice of Christ. So what in the world does he mean? Well, he's not meaning that, well, if something bad happens or people suffer, uh, it's God judging the church for their mistake or their sin. His point is eschatological. Bless you. (laughs) It's, yeah, (laughs) it's, it's basically about The end times, in other words, remember just prior to this last week, we talked about it and he said the end of all things is near. So remember he's talking about the end of all things, the second coming of Christ, the second kingdom of Jesus Christ that will be established. And Paul, uh, referenced this process to birth pangs. And that is, there's this prophecy, uh, that Jesus references this, Paul references it, and now Peter's referencing it. And that is before the second coming things get worse. Okay. And John addressed it in the book of revelation, also known as the apocalypse, where he said that right before the coming of Christ or the rapture will be something called the tribulation. So he's speaking in terms of eschatology, which basically means the study of the end times. And what he's saying is that eschatologically or in the end is that we're going to suffer like as with birth pangs and we're going to go through difficulty because people are so busy fighting against God and his coming final judgment. And so he's, he's referencing that. In other words, we have to suffer before the deliverance. And so this is why he said, all things are near in verse 19. Then he concludes, he goes, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do what is good. So what he's saying is that, look, Uh, it was really difficult for the righteous to be saved. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for them. What's going to become of the ungodly and the people who reject Jesus. He said, you're going to suffer, but their suffering is going to be infinitely much more pronounced. So commit yourself to God, trust in him. And he continue to do good and he will deliver you. And what's really amazing is that in Peter's mind is he was right. You get the impression that he believed, you know, Jesus is going to come. Before I die, right. The second time. Mm -hmm. And and when you read the new Testament, a lot of them had this sense that Jesus coming right now, well, Jesus hasn't returned 2000 years later. What do you do with that? Well, What's really interesting is that he gives us now the basic biblical principle. And that is, is that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the answer in the midst of our suffering. And that is we can trust Christ that he will fulfill his promises in us, not just in the future return, but also in the deliverance afterwards, regardless of what happens. So we must commit ourselves to him because he is faithful. He's our creator and we can continue to do good, even in the midst of great persecution. So basically if we
1: take seriously the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Mm -hmm. Christ. And that we can only be redeemed by him and through him, Correct. then the world is going to persecute us. That is a given statement. We shouldn't be surprised as verse 12 says when Mm -hmm. this happens and therefore that is why we really need
0: each other. Yeah. And that leads to his next point, um, in chapter five, he says, look, leadership. Has a responsibility in persecution. So he says basically that w- your job as a leader is to help people care for them and shepherd them. To do what? Right? Well, to stay committed and faithful to their creator. So verse one says to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God is opposed to the proud but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, That he may lift you up in due time. Now there's a lot here. That's really important because notice what he's saying. Let's go back start at the end and go backwards in verse six. He says the goal in the midst of persecution or suffering or difficult times is to humble yourself. Okay. What most people do in the midst of difficult times is they try to assert their power. They try to assert their rights. Do you have rights? Yes. In America you do. And they didn't have any rights. Okay. Mm Uh, it was a dictatorship today, people living in various other nations and countries who are followers of Christ. They don't have rights. I was reading about one of the fastest growing churches today is led by women in Iran of all places. And it is an Islamic dictatorship and these women can be rounded up and executed or thrown in prison because they're following Jesus. And they're like, we don't care. And so they don't have any rights. Now, the problem is in America, we've been told rights, talked about rights, and because our form of government bestows upon us certain rights, and I'll talk a little bit about this more on Wednesday, we start to assume then that the answer to suffering and persecution is to assert our rights. And what he's saying is this, is that, no, humble yourselves in God's mighty hand will exalt you in the proper time. Now, this doesn't mean that you become uh, necessarily a pacifist in the face of injustice when people in America are trying to take away certain rights. You don't do that. But it also means that the way we face persecution, particularly when it's personally directed at us, the answer isn't demanding our rights. And one one of the things that people do in America all the time is demand, you know, Christians. I see all the times they demand justice. You know, mm-hmm. I want justice. I want justice. And they're very quick to point the finger at a fellow follower of Jesus, right? This person wronged me. This person got, this person said this, this person cheated me. They're not acting like a Christian. And the difficulty with that is number one, that doesn't give you the strength to bear up under a crisis or persecution because you're not humbling yourself before God. Now, humbling yourself before God is simply saying this is that, well, I can't make accusations because I'm, I'm glad I'm just at the table because, you know, I can't tell you how many times I was unjust or did the wrong thing or made a mistake, right? We all have. And the problem with this, this seeping in attitudinal of judgment in Christianity is that we, we rob the gospel of its power because the power in the gospel, right? The power and godliness is redemption. It is the capacity to save and forgive and make new over and over again, but you have to walk the path of repentance and people don't want to walk the path of repentance and you'll never walk the path of repentance as long as you're demanding your rights. Now this is a little controversial, but I think people need to think about it. One of the ways that we, we, this is seeped into our thinking and distances us from what God wants to do in our lives is that we, we act like a victim. Mm. You see, we say, well, I'm just a victim and my life is miserable because these people treated me unjustly. Okay. Well, Peter is not allowing, he says, you need to humble yourself before God, right? And oftentimes uh, it's, you're incapable of ever finding freedom or bearing up under suffering if you believe yourself a victim. And the other thing that victimhood does is it creates an animosity towards God, Because it's, well, why isn't God doing this? And why isn't God a God of justice? He should be protecting me. Yeah, he's supposed to fix this. How come he's letting this happen? And Peter says, well, don't be shocked that ungodly people are trying to hurt you and wound you. And so don't allow that thinking to seep in. So humble yourselves because you remember God is opposed to the proud and shows favor to the humble. So when you humble yourself before God, what you're saying is that in any given situation, particularly like in America, this is called taking ownership for your stuff and it's so much better when you could say, wow, um, this is how I may have contributed to the situation, right? Mm. Uh, is there those occasions when someone is like completely innocent? Yeah, of course. You know, I just saw a video of a, a tourist in New York city uh, standing on the street corner, minding his own business, trying to do some tourist things. And, and a person who just gotten out of jail comes up and just cold cocks him on the back of the head, knocks him out, breaks his jaw and puts him in a coma. Well, that that's incredibly evil and unjust. right? Right. Um, but in, in personal interactions with other people and when people are doing things and you're doing things, uh, it's rarely. Almost never, you can't say it's completely innocent. It has to be completely random for that to be the case, I believe. And so what that always, I think that's a blessing because it always allows you then to evaluate and be able to say, which I think is incredibly important. It allows you to walk the path of humility. Uh, Wow. What, how did I contribute to this in some way? You take ownership for your So uh, yourself, and why is that important? Well, remember he's saying to leaders show the way don't Lord it over people who are entrusted to you. Don't pursue a dishonest gain. Don't use your position. Now, why is he telling people in the church to do this? Because the leaders were doing this.
1: They don't typically write those in the letters unless they were seeing examples
0: of it happening, right? Exactly. And they're saying, look, don't pursue dishonest gain. People were doing that. Because you are you know, don't doing it. Cause you resent it, you know, do it because you're willing. And God wants to use you be eager to serve, be an example to the flock. And then the chief shepherd is going to help you. Well, this is really important to understand because if is leaders are supposed to exemplify, right? Kindness and compassion and redemption, you know, not at the abandonment of truth, but truth is redemptive in its mm. nature and compassionate and, and healing. Okay. The other thing too, is that we need to learn as followers of whatever leaders, uh, God has placed to be humble. If we spend all our time demanding justice and we say, I don't want to do this. And uh, I'm not going to abide abide by this. Look, there are times for people to leave churches, but in America, it's just absurd. It's just absolutely absurd. People, people will go to a church and. They'll say, oh, I'm done because they said something I didn't like, or I wasn't, I wasn't treated properly. And then they just go somewhere else and they think, wow, I'm great because I have the capacity to judge all these churches and find them inferior. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's amazing is that Peter says, what you've done is you've destroyed yourself. You've destroyed your capacity to find peace in the midst of crisis. You've just des- destroyed your capacity to find uh, healing and hope and deliverance in the midst of crisis, because you haven't learned how to humble yourself in the midst of a problem.
1: I mean, I think it's interesting. It's almost like people need to learn to also follow. Everyone wants to step up and be a leader or call people out on the things that they've done wrong, yes. but they don't always want to own their stuff and say, well, maybe I don't know everything, or maybe I don't understand the situation and maybe I just need to stick with it and follow for a little bit or try to work it out. I think it's very easy in an age yes. where we throw things away on a daily basis. We're very, uh, temporary, you know, uh, my thing broke. I'm just gonna throw it out and get a new one. People want to do that to church too. Well, I don't like this one or they, they made me mad this one time. So rather than staying and having a conversation. I'm just going to throw it out and go get a different one.
0: <laughs> right. And he says earlier, you must pursue peace. Right. Right. And and so, so many people think that this is optional for their spiritual growth. And cause people have asked me over and over again, why do you think that Christians in America tend to be weak in their faith? And I think this is why.
1: Cause they can just do whatever they want all the time. Yeah. No, you, they don't you, have to suffer for anything.
0: Yeah. I think you just, you, that's perfect. They do what. They want you do what you want, right? You know, following Christ is learning how to say not what I want, but what you you want, want, Lord, I want to follow that. And, and that's really important because listen to the next verse seven of, of chapter five, cast all your anxiety on him, all of it because he cares for you. Mm. So if I'm going around saying I'm gonna do what I want. As opposed to God, do what you want when I'm in trouble. And I say, if I've learned to cast, or I've learned to say, God, what you want and humble myself and follow the path. Right. Even when I don't like it, then when my anxiety comes up and my fear comes up, guess where I've trained myself to cast it to God, to God, if I'm going around saying I'm going to do what I want, where have I trained myself? To cast my anxiety. It's all on me. It's all on me. And so that's why today in America, you live in the most affluent culture in the world, in the history of the world. And yet we chart as the most or rank ourselves as the most unhappy and anxiety ridden people in the history of the world. I mean, I
1: was dealing with that yesterday, actually, before Pastor Steve was giving a lesson to the uh, youth group where I was feeling really stressed out about some stuff Mm -hmm. we're working on and some deadlines I needed to hit. And then I went, why am I thinking I have to do this all on my own? Like one, I've got people around me and two, I have the ultimate helper God, and he's going to take care of it. If it's meant to be, and it's his plan, then it'll happen. Mm -hmm. And, and pastor Steve kind of called me out a little bit on that. He was teaching out of Mark and you know, Jesus (laughs) is taking a nap and calms the seas, and he says, you have little faith. And it's like, oh, I'm doing that thing. And this verse just reiterates that again, cast your anxiety. On him because he cares for you. It's like, why are you trying to do it all on your own? And why are you trying to assume that you need to handle it all? Whether it's persecution, anxiety, stress, whatever it may be. I need to write this on big letters on my, on my mirror <laughs> yeah. in the morning so I can look at it constantly.
0: But what's so powerful about that is it's the verses ahead that say, look, he says, there humble will yourselves <laughs> and learn to follow your leaders, whether you agree with them or not, because you're, it, it's not about your leader look here's the truth. This is a, one of the most saltiest things that I will probably say in a long time. And that is, is that I in no way, shape or form deserve to lead anybody. Hmm. I, I do not deserve it at all. I don't deserve to exercise authority over anybody before I became a Christian. I was a dirt bag. Mm. I mean, I was a hellion and kind of all kinds of trouble. You know, I created more grief in the hearts of people than peace. I could tell you that. And then after I became a Christian, you know, boy, it was rough and tumble for the first 10 years, I didn't become a Christian until, you know, in high school. And then it, for the next 10 years of my life, it was just you know, train wreck after train wreck, you know, but I, because I was a follower of Christ, I've been given a new identity in Jesus. The redemptive act of Christ taught me the importance of repentance, turning back to God and in learning that and learning humility, learning how to submit to other people. I don't deserve to lead anybody at all, you know? And so anybody who thinks, you know, Hey, I should be on a pedestal. Please don't. If you think I, I have, because I'm super smart or super wise or super experienced, I'm not
1: or super good looking you or super that good one. looking.
0: I forgot, that, forgot one. that one. I'm not, you know, I'm not talented. I do not deserve to lead anybody. Okay. So I think one reason why so many people say, well, we'd like to follow you pastor is because I'm not like, give me a special parking space. Give me, you know, I mean, on Sunday mornings, I park in the parking lot farthest away from the front door, you know? Um, I do, I do these things because I don't feel in and of myself of my own effort or my own capacity that I deserve to be in charge of anything or to lead any, and I've said many, many times over the last 27 years here at foot Hills preaching as I'm looking why do I preach the gospel so much? And so clearly because I need it more than anybody else in my life. I've said that over and over again. And I think this is so important is, is that it's not until I learned that could I train myself to do what cast all my anxiety on him. You know, the, the sad truth is, is that nobody wants to be a pastor anymore. There's no, you know, Bible colleges have dried up. They're dying that nobody wants to go to them anymore. Mm -hmm. When you go out and you search for people to lead a church now. The candidate pool is extremely small. It's getting smaller because nobody wants to do it. I was just talking to one of my closest friends last uh, week, and he's a pastor of a mega church in the Midwest. And we went to a Bible college in our undergrad. And I'd say with all of them there, you know, he said uh, in our graduating class, out of all of them, there were like 30 some. He said, only you and I are still in the ministry. Mm. So two out of 30, I don't know what percent that is. He said, not high. high. And he's saying that most people, you know, go and do something else. That doesn't mean they don't love the church, that they stop being Christians. They just do something else in the marketplace and then they serve or love in other ways. And I go, why is that? And I think part of it has to do with is, and I've I've told people this, you don't want my job. Mm. You don't want my job. And so I, you know, there's a lot of days I don't want my job, (laughs) but I asked the Lord, what do you want me to do? And he says, cast all your anxiety on me because I care for you. And then, so then I can, I can function. Right. Right. And so verse eight, he goes, be alert, be of sober mind. And I think because of that thing that's happening between God and I, I show up and then I can say I'm sober. So, um, I, when someone seeks. Biblical counsel, or what is, remember the last week, it says, Whoever speaks, speaks as if he's speaking the very words of God. Right. Well, the last thing you want to do is go get counsel from somebody spiritually, and they have an agenda, an axe to grind. They're not honest. You need somebody to teach you the truth, mm-hmm. you know, say the truth. And uh, an example of this is many, many years ago, a young man had contracted cancer, and I knew him uh, before he got married and then I performed their wedding ceremony and then they went to another church. Right. And so he contracted it. He was going through treatment. Things started to get worse. And he came to me and he said, and I'm not trying to be, uh, say a criticism, but it's just the facts. He said, I'm not dealing with this well. Uh, the counsel I'm getting is not helping me. I I don't know what to do. I don't have any hope, blah, 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 blah. And he looks at me and he says, he goes, I came to you because I knew you would always tell me the truth. And in that moment, if I have even a smidgen of, I want this person to like me, or I want this person to think that I'm so wise and I quoted so many verses so that they would go out and tell everybody else, oh, I went and talked to Pastor Doug and he has this biblical knowledge that is so awesome. That would devalue what God has asked me to do. Mm. And so I looked him in the face and I said, the problem is you don't realize you're dead already. Mm. And he just sat back in his chair and it like hit him with a ton of bricks. And then this, you could just almost visually see in the way his body language this massive weight fell off of his shoulders. And he said, no one's ever said that to me. Mm. And I said, well, God said that before you came to know him. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and I will make you alive. You're holding on to the wrong life. You're holding on to this earthly life when God has saved your soul. Right. And when he passed right before he passed away, I went over and saw him in his home. He passed away in his own bed and he said, I know I go to this other church and everybody knows me, but I want you to tell the truth, speak at my funeral. Hmm. And so I did. And so that I'm not trying to aggrandize myself. I'm just trying to be really honest about what he's saying here is that you can't be sober minded unless all your anxiety, your need for approval has been cast upon Christ until that happens. Your enemy has an opportunity to prowl around and steal to destroy you. But if you cast it on God, turn to him, the God of all grace, who called you to his Eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, he himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power and forever. Amen. Those are powerful words.
1: Those are some very powerful words. I, I just have really loved our study here in First Peter, and I know you're going to take some time um, on Thursday to really dive into what these final verses we read through mm-hmm. today and studied, how they apply to us um, today. But, I mean, what a powerful, powerful book of the Bible. And it's only five chapters, so if you haven't been reading along with us, I really encourage you guys to do that. Read through it a couple more times. Um, Pastor Doug does a really good job of, of giving you some context and, and reading through these with you, but you reading the words and really, um, instilling them and understanding them and seeing them in different translations is really going to open up your horizons and give you better context as you come on Sunday to listen to Pastor Doug close with this final chapter. So thank you guys so much for joining us. We'll see you on Thursday here on the Salty Pastor
0: Podcast. Blessings.